what I wanted to do today was start a little, probably a two-parter on um, self-kindness, sometimes called self-compassion, as a spiritual practice. So self-kindness not rooted so much in the more modern self-esteem tradition, but self-kindness uh, um, rooted as a spiritual practice. Um, and I'm rooting it in what I think is uh, the most important portion of scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. But first, so the beginning of the sermon is going to be kind of dense and you're going to be working a little bit your brains. And then the last part is going to be like, oh, okay, this makes sense, blah, blah, blah. Um, first thing we need to do, since we're rooting this um, self-kindness as a spiritual practice and love your neighbor as yourself, this is the law of the prophets, is we need to restore this portion of scripture to its rightful place. So the background on this, if you're uh, familiar with the Christian landscape and, and everyone in, in this country would be affected by the Christian landscape, if not explicitly tuned in to all the dynamics of it, you would first want to ask a question, why would it be stated this way, love your neighbor as yourself, for this is the law and the prophets? Like, why would Jesus say that, for this is the law and the prophets? Um, because there would be many interpretations of scripture, right? How could it not be the case that there would be many interpretations of any text, especially an ancient text? Um, and these interpretations wouldn't all agree. And, you know, when there are multiple interpretations, like there are some interpretations that are better than other interpretations. All interpretations are not equal. So how would you, what kind of rule of thumb would you need to discern what interpretation of scripture just seems good because I grew up with it or because everyone around me in my religious context, you know, claims this is a good interpretation of scripture. Uh, how would I test that against some, some standard? And this is the standard that Jesus is offering his disciples. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. Everything has to measure up to that. So, you know, not so long ago, Slavery was justified by appeal to scripture. And it was only overturned when enough people insisted this cannot be a legitimate use of scripture because it violates this rule, love your neighbor as yourself. I can see that. And that's in fact the key linchpin that overturned um, slavery theologically as people applied love your neighbor as yourself to this situation. Um, so that's by way of background, but you could see how this rule would come under suspicion in religious settings that are mainly conserved, concerned to preserve the status quo, right? You, you following me on this? This rule would come under suspicion. It would be diminished in its importance in settings that were mainly concerned to preserve the status quo because this is a rule for judging the status quo, whether it's good, whether it's legitimate or not. And, and we would have to say the sector of Christianity that is suspicious about this, which diminishes it, is the sector of Christianity that is the most dominant in the United States at this time. And so if, like you, if you were part of the Christian landscape for a while, you would get a feel for this, that love your neighbor as yourself, oh, that's something those liberals would talk about. 
But it's not something that people are really serious that the Bible would be talking about. Why? Because if people were challenging what were considered orthodox interpretations, they would often challenge it by using this text of scripture. So it came in many different quarters under a kind of suspicion, like, oh, we know what your game is when you start referring to that text. Is, uh, am, I, am I like on another planet or just, are you just, you're getting the feel? Yeah, great. Um, <clears throat> now in the Jesus movement, so we have to look at this. In the, in the early decades, when the writings that we now call the New Testament were being produced, um, if you were to take all those different writings and you were to create a, um, a word cloud, I think it's called, a word cloud, would you also call it a meme? I guess a word cloud could be a meme, so you would call it a word cloud. Thank you, I'm getting corrected by the congregation as we move along here. You're dragging me into the 21st century. I super appreciate it. If you were to make a word cloud out of all the different things that are mentioned in the New Testament writings, the largest font, front and center, would be love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just unspool this for a minute. When in the Gospels, when Jesus was asked by other religious leaders who were not his followers, so Jews like Jesus was, but not, um, not so much tuned into Jesus' teaching, when those leaders would ask Jesus um, what the greatest commandment of the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible called the Law of Moses, referred to as Torah, and that, that was a standard question to ask people. What's the greatest commandment of all, Rabbi? This was just a standard question that people would get asked. It was a standard thing to bat around as you're talking about scripture and Torah and the law and all that. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this question is asked of Jesus by these leaders who are not followers of Jesus. And his response in all three places, first he cites Deuteronomy, which is in the book of the writings of Moses and the first five books of the Bible. He cites, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Jesus actually seems to have added mind to that list, so he made it four instead of three things. That's called the Shema. So if you were Jewish, you would know the Shema. That's like the thing that you're a pious Jew would pray three times a day, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Um, that's the first thing he would cite. And then he added a portion from the book of Leviticus, also in what we call the Old Testament, and love your neighbor as yourself, then he adds, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, the thing to understand about this is Jesus wasn't cooking this up himself. Christians like to ascribe all the cool things to Jesus like he just invented them out of thin air. But the, much of the awesomeness of Jesus is that he was Jewish and he was part of this tradition and, and he, would, he would call wonderful things from that tradition. And this would be a great example of that. This was not like some newfangled thing that Jesus... He was probably quoting what he had heard growing up that these two uh, were the key for, the, for understanding the Law and the Prophets. But in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a long section of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's like uh, three chapters at least in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, so he's not talking to people who are not his followers now, he's talking to his disciples, he actually narrows this to one thing. 
love your neighbor as yourself. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we'd be in uh, Matthew 7 at this point, he says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule, we've heard that before. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is Jesus as a rabbi. He's doing a midrash. You know, he's interacting with the tradition and he's taking a text that's well known and he's putting his own spin on it. And there had been another version of this before that was more in the negative. He's putting it in the positive and he's saying, this is the law of the prophets. He doesn't add love God to it. It's love your neighbor as yourself in this particular form uh, in everything you do, do to others as you would have them do to you. And then, right after that, the very next saying in the Sermon on the Mount is, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So, you would have to say the golden rule, which is his version of love your neighbor as yourself, is actually the narrow path, not the easy path or the broad path. This is super significant because when people want to preserve the status quo and it's challenged on the basis of love your neighbor as yourself, the common like objection to that is, well, you're just looking for an easy way to out of God's commands, like no sex for you if you're gay, sorry, you know. Are you picking the logic up of how the arguments go within the, within the church, right? Um, but Jesus is actually saying here, the hard way, the narrow path, is the way of love. It's the way of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the narrow path. That's the difficult path. Are you with me? So we know this narrow way, love your neighbor as yourself, made a big impact on the followers of Jesus because they echo it in the writings of the New Testament. So Paul is a rabbi who came to faith in Jesus after the resurrection. He writes, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Again, he's narrowed it down to one command, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. In a later letter, the same writer Paul clarifies, and love does no harm to the neighbor, in case you're wondering <laughs> what love is. Love doesn't do any harm to the neighbor, so if it harms the neighbor, it's not love. Now, why would you need to say something like that unless people were harming their neighbor and claiming it was the loving thing to do, right? I mean, so this is all in a concept. You know, Paul is not writing Hallmark cards. He's not coming, you know, like, let me just see something. There's, I know people are going to need to paint plates, you know, and put them on their walls and in their old people's houses. And so they're going to need to have things. And I want to be the person that has uh, my saying selected for the plates that are hanging on the wall. No, this is not. He was in the context of a lot of, lot of uh, controversy and disputing going on in, uh, in his tradition, as is true, because we're humans. Similarly, James. Now, James, he's the guy in the New Testament that sounds the most like Jesus, like his style of speaking. It's possible he was the brother of Jesus. He was certainly in close to all the Jesus sayings directly that are in the Gospels. James writes, if you really keep the royal law, 
He means like the messianic law, the, the law that Jesus emphasized, found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So again, it's narrowed in the New Testament to love your neighbor as yourself. Why would the earliest documents of the Jesus movement place such an emphasis on this? I mean, originally, this is just a text in the book of Leviticus. It's just, it's almost lost. And then it, it's just, it's like the cream rises. There's something about this text that just exerts power over time. And the Jewish people recognize its power. And suddenly it's not just a single text. And the book of Leviticus kind of buried. It's like more and more prominent. And then Jesus just intensifies that. And his followers catch on that that's super important to him. So they stress it. Why would the Jesus movement, of all movements, place such an emphasis on this? There's, probably, there's no other religious movement that's associated to the, to the religion of Israel that emphasizes, emphasizes it like this. Well, because all theology is biography, right? <laughs> all our ways of thinking about God are connected to our experience as human beings in our lives. The Jesus movement was challenging some conventional interpretations of Torah, of the law, of what we would call scripture. And everyone in this dispute was claiming scripture and many were using conventional interpretations as what we would now call clobber texts, you know, against the early Jesus following uh, Jewish people. And this rhetorical move, claiming zeal for God as a cover for doing things that are harmful to people caused great harm to Jesus himself and to his followers. Paul himself started out as a persecutor of the church using scripture as a weapon against the early Jesus followers. One of the classic things was that somewhere in scripture it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So that text was applied to Jesus. Well, he was, he, was, he was crucified, so obviously he was cursed. He couldn't be the Messiah. So that's an example of using a text of Scripture in this kind of polemical way to make your case. So love your neighbor as yourself was so important because it was their way of saying to their Jewish brothers and sisters, look, if you're using Torah to harm us then, or to exclude us or to say we're less than, then your interpretation is wrong. Any use of scripture that violates love your neighbor as yourself is wrong. This was a very important move. This was a very important move in the Jesus movement. It was a protest against love of God or zeal for God or zeal for Torah as a reason to justify actions that were harmful to other people. I mean, isn't that relevant in our world today? That, I mean, isn't that one of the great problems of the modern world is that various religious traditions are doing things out of zeal for God that are actually harmful to people? Like, this is a lesson for us right here, right now. I mean, we're in a very similar situation in the dominant forms of Christianity in the United States. The current resurgence of white supremacy the refusal to deal with environmental degradation is empowered by people who wave the Christian flag and claim the book, right? I mean, God have mercy. This is a bad situation we're in. So it's absolutely no surprise 
that in such a time as this, the entire law is fulfilled in one command, love your neighbor as yourself, would be domesticated by the dominant forms of, of religion. It would be rendered like less powerful, impotent. It, it would be treated like a house cat that you declaw, you know. So now we're ready to consider self-kindness as a spiritual practice. See, I had to do all this work because I knew if I rooted it in this text, some of you have been kind of brainwashed to think, well, that's just kind of like a, that's what, eh, that's what people who don't take the Bible very seriously always root things in. And I'm saying, no, this is super, super important in the tradition. Self-kindness as a spiritual practice rooted in love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's look at that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. What would you say is the punchline of that verse? Is it love your neighbor or is it as yourself? What's the one that really gives it like some edge? Yeah, I would say it's as yourself. Like love your neighbor. Well, I mean, gosh, no human societies have ever existed that didn't emphasize loving your neighbor. Otherwise, everyone would just, you know, no one could live together, right? Like, love your neighbor. Be nice to your neighbor. Like, wow, you need revelation from God to love your neighbor? No, that's like evolution. You know, love your neighbor. Be nice to the people around you so you can survive. But love your neighbor as yourself. That's like, ooh. So this is the important part. So what I want to suggest we do as a as part of a little meditative practice, and we can start it now, is take your three by five card and a pen, and on that three by five card in your own hand, just write down this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, but do it in a way that emphasizes the punchline. Maybe you put as yourself in all caps, or if you're artistic, you could embellish as yourself and draw, <laughs> draw things around it or whatever. Just any way to, to emphasize that second part, love your neighbor as yourself. So just take a minute to write that down in your own hand on the card. Actually, writing things down in our own hand um, helps them get into our brain because it's a physical thing we're doing, not just a mental thing we're doing. So let's move straight to the practice part of this. And I've selected a simple thing for thinking of this as a practice. It's the practice of receiving a compliment. Receiving a compliment. Now, I do, I do want to say that things, the way people express love is different in different cultures. And there's lots of cultures that actually don't, don't specialize in giving compliments. People show their love in other ways. But I would say in our culture in general, there's a value on, on giving compliments. So I want to talk about the spiritual practice of receiving any compliments that happen to come your way. I wonder if a lot of you are a little bit like me, that you secretly crave compliments, but when someone actually gives you a compliment, you are strangely uncomfortable in the act of receiving it. So you th it's like, I have this little secret. I wish I would get a compliment. I would really like my little insecure self would love a compliment, you know, but I don't want to confess that I like compliments. And so when someone gives me a compliment, I kind of pretend like it, it doesn't really matter that much to me. Is, is this just me? Am I the only neurotic person in the room? Okay, right. 
So we have different strategies as if, if this is our approach. Now, if you're a narcissist, this might not be applied to you at all. It might be like, oh, compliments? Yeah, that's the world recognizing my wonders. But here's, here's what people who, are, who don't suffer from that, um, how they might typically respond. You turn into Teflon. So the comp compliment bounces right off you. So someone says, you look great today. And you say, oh, oh, it's a bad hair day. That's, you just, you just go, you go Teflon on the compliment. It bounces right off you. End of story. Or, here's a good one, you treat the compliment like a punch, and you punch back. So someone says, you have a beautiful singing voice, and your immediate response is, oh, I think your voice is beautiful. So it's like a punch, and you just give it back. You don't receive it, you just give it back. Or a more subtle version of this, super subtle. Someone says, you have a beautiful voice. And you say, you are so kind to say that. See, now the focus isn't on your beautiful voice, to focus on how kind they are to recognize. So before you even accept it, you, you, you kind of give it back. You, Another way of not receiving a compliment is you redirect it to another person. Someone says, you're a really good speaker. And you say, well, I had a really good mentor. It's like, well, you're kind of, it's, like it's like a judo move. You're taking the positive energy of a compliment. And you're not just absorbing it into yourself. You're just like passing it on to someone else. And in that, you can kind of pretend that you don't really crave compliments like most of us actually do. And you maintain your cool that way. So let's apply the golden rule to this spiritual practice of receiving a compliment. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the Law and the Prophets. So just imagine that it's not easy for you to give compliments. But you have such a, like an acute appreciation for someone, you just have to say something to them. So you think about it. What is it about them that you so appreciate? And then you look for the right moment to deliver your compliment or the right medium, whether to text it, whether to send it as an email, whether a face-to-face -face interaction. And, and then the moment comes and you say, you are such a good listener. You ask great questions and then you really listen. And you don't just jump into offering your own thoughts. You, you, then you ask follow-up questions. You are so good at that. Now, imagine that the person that you have complimented uses one of those tactics that I detailed. They turn into Teflon, and your compliment bounces off them. Or they treat the compliment like a punch, and they punch it back. Well, oh, I just thought you were so good at that. Uh, uh, you know, or they redirect your compliment to someone else. How does that feel to you as the compliment giver? Well, how did it feel to you at Christmas when you thought about, you know, put a lot of thought into getting someone a present and you wrap up the present and you give them the present and they kind of open the present and they say like, oh, you didn't have to do that. And they put it aside. My, uh, my partner, Julia, she, she made a, um, a calendar for family members and put all the family members' uh, um, birthdays and 
death anniversary days and all the important information and got pictures of the people and did her own photography on it and sent it out to family members, including my family and Julia's newer to my family. My sister Nancy, God bless her, called Julia up as she got that, that calendar. She said, Julia, she'd never called Julia before, like just to call her sister-in-law. Oh my gosh, that calendar was wonderful. I, I was just so excited about that. I'm always forgetting everybody's birthday and I can't keep track of it. And she has a, my, my uh, sister has a son who ha, uh, has autism and loves calendars and like studies calendars and can tell you what day of the week it's going to be when your birthday, February 10th, 2042, you know. Um, and, and, and Danny got a, and she's just gushing. At, Julia got out the phone with my sister. She was just like, she was just like lit up. Because this, I mean, someone just so appreciated that gift. It just gave her such joy. And that's, that's what we really want. Now, why is it so important for us to focus on receiving a compliment when it comes our way or any kind of positive input that comes our way? Well, it has to do with our brains. Um, our brains are just evolved to pay extra attention to negative input of any kind. I mean, thank God for that. I mean, we are, our brains are equipped to do one thing above everything else, and that's to keep us alive for as long as possible. Th just thank your brain, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's what a loving thing, you know, that your brain wants to keep you alive. And it's just organized to keep you alive. But as a result, your brain will pay extra attention to anything that might possibly be a threat to your survival. Um, our brains prioritize survival over anything and that's the problem is as social creatures our survival depends on getting along with other humans that means we are hyper focused on any possibly negative input from other people you know I think they say our brains pay five times more attention to negative input than to positive input actually done like studies they show picture people pictures and if you, you know a pleasant like picture like the brain like lights up a little bit for a short period of time but like a threatening picture it lights up for a long time and really strongly at least five times more more attention to negative input than to positive in input you know they do this research on what makes for a stable marriage or friendship or long-term relationship and they say the key is that the, the two parties in the stable relationship have five times more positive interactions than negative interactions five times more positive interaction and that just is a function of our of our brains um, so it takes extra effort and attention, that is, a spiritual practice to absorb, take in, receive input that's positive when it comes our way. So one of the ways you can do this is to apply the 22nd rule. This is a challenge. You apply the 22nd rule to receiving a compliment. So, you know, they, they've determined that if, if uh, two partners hug for 20 seconds, it releases all this oxytocin, which is the feel-good, stay-connected-to-other-people uh, hormone. But it takes tw a 20-second hug 
to release the oxytocin. 20 seconds in a hug, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's not a casual hug, you know. That's 20 seconds. You want me to count out 20 seconds? You know, it would be like, wow, that's a long time. Let's move on, you know. <laughs> now, what if 20 seconds is what it really takes to, to connect with a compliment, you know? Wouldn't that be interesting? I, you know, um, I was walking, walking downtown. It was dark. I was, I was with Julia and... Um, I had a light stick. It's about this size. I, I'm super concerned about safety, and I'm, I, it's my job to keep everyone safe. So I, I bought this light stick, and I've got reflectors, and walking around with my light stick. I'm very proud of my light stick. And as I'm walking around with my light stick, um, I hear, as from, it's from a passerby car, it goes, hey, dude! Now, it's dark. There's not light. You, you, you know, you hear someone yell at you from a car, hey, dude! I was like, what, what? I'm going to protect my woman. And, you know, you know, I was just like on, on you know, alert. My, my, my primal brain was operating. And I, 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 Julia's like, what's the matter? He, he, and the guy had rolled down his window and he was saying, hey, dude, where did you get that light stick? <laughs> now, I was delighted. <laughs> that he recognized the value of my light stick. And I was like, oh, yes, well, yeah, I got, got it on Amazon. You have to search here, and this is how it works. And, but my first response was, oh, my gosh, this might possibly be a negative interaction. So this is why we need the 20-second rule for receiving compliments. So here's your self-kindness as a spiritual practice assignment. The next time you receive any positive input... From another human being, actually it could come from a pet too for that matter, <laughs> um, an email, a text, a face-to-face -face interaction, maybe like an indirect interaction where it reflects well on you but it maybe wasn't directed specifically toward you. The next time that happens, and pray God that it happens before you forget this, um, you intentionally pause and you give yourself 20 seconds to take that in. This is easy when it's an e email. You can reread the email, right? Um, you pause when the person says something positive about you, and you say, oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. That'll take up about eight seconds. <laughs> you make a mental note. I just got some positive input. You make a mental note and you say, when, I'm, when I've got a little time, I'm going to revisit that. And so you revisit that a little bit later. Of like, oh yeah, that person said this about me. Wow. So you just give yourself 20 seconds to absorb that, um, that compliment. And I think as we, as we practice this on ourselves, receiving positive input for 20 seconds, we will naturally have a stronger desire to notice other people doing things well and caring for other people well and just, you know, improving the lot of humanity and then taking the effort to tell them about it. And so that's how the love machine works in the universe of love. So in uh, two weeks, we're going to look at part two of this, the practice of self-kindness. But our focus is going to be on responding to ourselves when we disappoint ourselves. Um, so that's another side of it. So quiet reflection time.
by the way, I want to give a shout out to Cassie because it was her sermon on December 29th about kindness that got me thinking about this. So this is like the second part in the, in the series. Um, quiet reflection. So we take a couple of minutes here and I'll do a little coaching and a little um, prompting. Just for the first minute in our time of reflection, I'd like to invite you to think about someone, identify someone in your life who isn't so hot at self-kindness and who tends to be kind of hard on themselves. Don't picture yourself as this person, but someone you know who, who's like this. So just take a minute to identify them. And then as you just think about that person, I want you to pay attention to that feeling you have, that desire that they not be so hard on themselves. And just take a minute with that little imagination experiment. Again, put your focus on how you feel as someone who loves that other person and wants them to be not so hard on themselves, wants them to be kinder to themselves. What does that feeling feel like? And now let's just switch the scene a little bit. And I'd like to suggest that you imagine God sitting in front of you. You could picture some comfortable place where there's a couple of chairs and you're in one chair and, and um, God's presence is in the other chair. Just try to picture that. And try to imagine God sitting right across from you having that same feeling that you have for that person in your life that's a little too hard on themselves, but having that feeling about you. So in this, in this imaginative exercise, you're focusing on appreciating the feeling that God might have. It doesn't have to be words, just be sensitive to that feeling of God sitting across to you from you, feeling that about you, what would that be like? <coughs> Just stick that with that a little bit longer. Okay, very good. Well done, everybody.